Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Ido Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. Editor in Washington, D.C. I'm Philippa Nuttall, Environment Editor in Glasgow. I'm Tim Ross, Executive Editor for Politics in Glasgow, too. It's Thursday, the 4th of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we introduce a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week saw the COP26 climate conference open in Glasgow. World leaders from over 100 countries descended on the Scottish city for the summit, billed by host UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson as crucial to keeping the hope of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius alive. The first few days, which leaders attended in person, saw a flurry of headline-grabbing pledges, including 100 countries promising to reduce emissions of methane, a harmful greenhouse gas by 30% by 2030 compared to 2020 levels, and a pledge to end and begin reversing deforestation by 2030. Boris Johnson heralded the agreement, calling it a landmark. But will the commitments be enough to prevent the worst effects of climate change? While some leaders of laggard countries have yet to make net zero pledges or made them just days before the conference, others warned forcefully about the need for drastic action. Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, said the very existence of countries like hers is threatened by climate change. 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees is a death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder. Belarus's dictator Alexander Lukashenko stands accused of orchestrating massive illegal migration into Poland, precipitating a humanitarian crisis on the EU's eastern border. Lukashenko accuses the West of hypocrisy in its response to the crisis, but has given no indication that his policy of apparently sponsoring migration into the EU will change. Poland and Lithuania accuse Belarus of artificially creating the migrant crisis. At the same time, they create paths for migrants to leave their countries to go to France and Germany. Those countries conduct widespread and cynical violations of human rights. Ido was at Poland's border with Belarus last week and will speak about his reporting there. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Filippo, welcome back onto the podcast. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. You were both at COP, 
let's just get right off the bat, Philippa, and then and then you, Tim, your impressions from what you've seen and heard. Thanks, Emily. From what we've seen and heard, I mean, we obviously had the World Leaders Summit for the past few days, and now the the negotiations are in the hand of the of the negotiators. Uh, the experts, but there was a definite sense of slight optimism in Boris Johnson's press conference last night. After the G20, things seemed to be very downbeat. He gave the speech that humanity against climate change was was 5-1 down. To uh, the G20 in Rome, I said to some of you on the plane that if this was a football match, then the current score would be uh, 5-1 down uh, in in the match between humanity and climate change. Yesterday, he was more upbeat. He said we were now at 5-2, 5-3. I think there has been a little bit of progress. There's still obviously a long, long way to go. And speaking to certain developing countries, there's, there's a very long way to go. But I think things are, are perhaps a little bit more hopeful and perhaps people thought at the weekend. Tim, you were, you were at the G20 and now you're at COP. Do you agree that there was this shift in tone or feeling even from pessimism to optimism? Well, it, it does rather depend who you're talking to. I mean, I was on the on the trip with Boris Johnson on his plane, in fact, as we flew out of London into Rome. And it was on that flight that he made his footballing analogy. He also likened the, the peril that faces the planet really to the, to the fall of the Roman Empire. So he was keen on deploying various metaphors to communicate the scale of the problem ahead. And certainly, while he was quite jovial on the, on the plane, he was also very serious that mood really darkened actually by the end of the G20 and, and when I was sitting in his press conference he seemed pretty grumpy to be honest about the way that that G20 summit had played out he was quite quite frustrated and then yet merely a couple of days later he walked up at a press conference in Glasgow and declared that you know the world had pulled a couple of goals back against climate change and it looked like the win was on so I've got a bit of a question mark about whether the government was over hyping some of that negativity and or whether this is all just a bit of political spin really to, to make it look like Johnson has delivered a, a triumph pulled it out of the bag at the last minute but we'll have to see and I think the really important verdict actually won't come until the end of COP when the NGOs and the UN and others give their own verdicts on, on how it's all gone. Philippa, speaking about these apparent achievements, we've had these two uh, seemingly quite significant pledges made in the first few days of the conference on deforestation and reducing methane emissions. These these seem like quite significant achievements. Um, how, how do you evaluate them? Are they successes or are they uh, is there less to them than would perhaps first appear? I think they're successes in the sense that they're out there. Lots of countries have signed up to them, but there's significant holes in both of them on methane for example the main uh, focus of the methane agreement is on reducing methane in the extraction and and transport of the fossil fuels of oil and gas and coal china is the biggest producer of methane from coal mines and china hasn't signed up to the methane agreement yet so so that's obviously something which is missing again the targets that have been put in place a 30 percent reduction by 2030 it is not enough the percentage reduction needs to be 45 percent according to energy experts um, in order to be in line with 1.5 degrees so again there's a lot more to be done so i think it's a good first step but there's still much more on the deforestation even forest campaigners have, have welcomed the agreement deforestation is very important in terms of both mitigating climate change goals and adapting to, to climate change. But again, uh, the promises that are being made to, to essentially end deforestation by, by 2030 is hugely ambitious. And I think there's quite a lot of scepticism that countries like uh, Brazil, which are 
still logging uh, intensely, are serious about this and can actually achieve an end to deforestation in less than nine years. And Tim, obviously this, this summit is being hosted by the UK and Boris Johnson has been very vocal on this issue and it would seem to complement his agenda of what he calls global Britain, a sort of um, you know post-Brexit project for, for what UK foreign policy should be. I know you've been reporting a, a story on this. How, how would you say it's gone so far for the UK in terms of uh, the kind of political aims of, of the conference, at least for the, for the government? It's a, it's a very good question. I mean, global warming, global Britain, what's not to like there, really, if you're, if you're a slogan maker? I, I think quite a lot. But the, the government's really trying its hardest to paint this as a success for Britain and for Boris Johnson's leadership. The truth is the UK is not a superpower and needs to define its own role in the world now as the European Union. Tony Blair used to like to say that Britain could be a bridge between the European Union and the United States, that's no longer the case, clearly. In fact, relations with the European Union have gone very rapidly downhill since Brexit. But what Johnson does want is to make the UK a convener, a kind of country that can bring others together and be at the heart of new debates and and sort of nimble new alliances. And you saw that to some degree anyway, with the with the AUKUS deal with US and Australia to strengthen defence and, and meet the sort of Chinese challenge. And I think that's a very important thing. So for that agenda, as the, as, as the UK is a sort of convener of other powers and a broker, an honest broker on the world stage, COP is important, although clearly there's a lot more to getting agreements among 200-odd countries than just what the host nation manages to do. One thing that's frustrated me watching COP is the sort of gulf between the the so-called global north and the global south. So you have the global north, you know, historically the world's largest emitters. And I, and I would very much include the United States on this, right? Saying that, oh, we're going to set an example and where we lead, others will follow. And then really not backing that up with concrete action. And then you have the the global south, which is going to be more dramatically and imminently impacted by climate change, which is not to say that climate change is not coming for us all. Philippa, I guess, what have you made of this uh, dichotomy at the conference? Am I making too much of it? And also, what did you make of India's pledge to get to zero net emissions by 2070? I mean, the the difference between the developed world and developing countries in terms of climate action and at COPs is, is nothing new. Um, this has been here from the start of the negotiations on climate because, as you've said, in the developed countries, the global north, is responsible for climate change, essentially. And the global south has done very little in terms of producing the emissions that, that cause climate change. That said, I think there is a bit of a, a slight shift which is happening with the net zero pledges. And as you alluded to yourself, India came forward this week as a developing country and said it planned to, to get to net zero emissions by 2070. Most countries have signed up to 2050. China's an exception with, with 2060. But I think just the very fact that a developing country has come forward with an idea of getting to net zero by 2070, which is something which certainly would not have happened a couple of years ago, is progress of sorts and shows that perhaps the difference between at least the bigger developing countries and the developed countries is perhaps changing slightly. China's a big hole here because the leader of China isn't obviously in Glasgow uh, and China still seems to be hedging its bets a little bit as to whether it wants to be seen as a developed or a developing country and, and how it fits in with that narrative. I think where the real gap exists is between the developed countries and the least developed countries, the most vulnerable nations, such as small island states, which really are on the front line of climate change and whether we're doing enough to help those countries. 
Just one last question for both of you. The first few days of COP had the actual leaders, so the, the leaders were attending in, in person and the subsequent uh, 10 days or so of the remaining will have their, their delegates where they'll be sort of going into fairly technical negotiations. What do you expect to see from the remainder of the, of the conference? Will the main achievements have already been decided? So every day of the conference has a sort of theme. So today is energy day. Uh, we expect to see various announcements around coal uh, and this goes forward. So, so every day there is likely to be some kind of announcement, different pledges going forward, uh, which will make it into the public space. And then obviously behind closed doors, there are lots of very, as you just said, nitty gritty uh, discussions going ahead to see how countries can move forward on lots of different issues, such as nature-based solutions or carbon trading. And then on the bigger picture of how countries actually can move closer with their roadmaps to, to emissions reductions and towards 1.5. All the detailed negotiations are going to be going on until the end of the summit. And in the final lap, that last weekend could be a very long one, I think. The world leaders obviously have all gone, but Boris Johnson is reserving the right to come back if he thinks that there's something in it for him. So if there's a, a great deal of progress and there are some decent headlines for him, he may come back and do a lap of honour later. Ido, you were just in Poland. Can you tell us what you saw there? So I was in Poland reporting on uh, this ongoing migrant crisis that's emerged this year. So since the summer, Belarus has been essentially sponsoring illegal migration into the European Union. There are dozens of flights a week to Minsk from places like Erbil in Iraq or Syria or Dubai or Istanbul, bringing thousands of people who are allowed visa-free entry into Belarus. And from Belarus, they are brought to the border with the EU, either Lithuania or now Poland, and essentially pointed in the direction of the EU and told to walk. And at the beginning, the borders were relatively unsecured. Um, the beginning of this route, what, what has now become known as the Belarus route, when it first opened. But uh, in recent months, Lithuania and Poland have erected razor wire fences. They've deployed the, the army and it's become very difficult to cross. And so I went to Poland to see the conditions that migrants are having to live in and in some cases die under uh, at the border where the government has imposed incredibly harsh conditions, including a law legalizing pushbacks to the border of migrants, which is illegal under international law, but which the government is doing nonetheless. So when I was there, I met a family of seven people who'd come from Iraqi Kurdistan, including someone we're going to call Ali, who explained to me that he paid $5,000 to get to Minsk and told me how he'd been treated at the border. The Polish guard catch us. Mm -hmm. They put us on the border mm -hmm. between the Belarusian and Polish guards. Mm -hmm. They, we say to the Belarusian guard, let us go to the Minsk. He said, no. Mm -hmm. We said to the Polish girl, let us to live in the Poland. We love, we want to live in the Poland. He said, no. We ask him food, uh, water. He said, no water, no food. Mm -hmm. Then the baby crying for water. Yeah. I go to uh, tell him, just give me some water. Yeah. He said, I don't have water. I just have a pistol. Oh. Then the Belarusian guard came and say to us, uh, come, come, come with us. They tell us, go another side. They cut the wire mm -hmm. 
and they I think go, the, go, the Belarusians. Is a Belarusian. The, the border guards cut yeah, the wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put us in the in the car yeah. and go, 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 go. Yeah. Then in the forest, they come with us a little bit. Go into go. Poland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Into Poland. Go, go. This Poland, go to the forest and call some people, and they will get you to the German. Mm-hmm. We said, okay, but we just want to live in the Poland. How, how, how was it in the forest? It must have been very cold. It was very cold, baby crying, don't have a meal. And it's been like seven days of walking and five days we're sleeping in the forest. How did the Belarusian border guards treat you? Did they beat you? Did they? The Belarusian guard and the Polish guard both hit us. I think the, the main thing to, to keep in mind here is that this route was relatively easy when it was unsecured and when it was summer because conditions were relatively easy. Um, migrants, when the route first opened, they just crossed over. There wasn't really any security at the border between Belarus and the EU, either Lithuania or Poland, and they just crossed over and they waited to either apply for asylum in the country at which they just arrived or tried to get to usually Germany. That has now changed. And because, first of all, the conditions and the security at the border has been beefed up by Lithuania and Poland. And second of all, and probably uh, worst of all, the weather has gotten a lot worse. The conditions that migrants are having to suffer through are a lot worse. So I spoke to a doctor at Hainovka Hospital. Hainovka is a town near the border and the hospital is where a lot of migrants with severe health problems who get found by the border guards get brought. He said they weren't really seeing that many migrants when the weather was good. But now that the weather is bad, it gets minus zero some nights. They're seeing migrants coming in with hypothermia, people in, in, in really quite a bad way. One of the women in the group that Ali was uh, traveling with, his family, when I saw her, she seemed in a really, really bad way. She apparently had hypothermia. When I first arrived, she was in a sleeping bag, kind of zipped up, right? Uh, she'd been given an emergency blanket by the by the organization helping them called Kaganitsa. And I didn't notice there was someone there because she was just motionless in the sleeping bag. And then eventually a, an ambulance got called. But it took until the ambulance arriving for me to realize that there was someone in that sleeping bag because she was just motionless. And to be honest, I don't think she would have survived a day or two longer, which gives you an idea of how woeful conditions are. What What's really worth bearing in mind is, first of all, it's exacerbated by Polish policy, which is to send them back to the border and they're not allowed back into Belarus. So essentially there are dozens or hundreds of people at the border between the Belarusian border guards and the Polish border guards, and they really have nowhere to go, no shelter, not really very much food. And it's only going to get worse as temperatures go down. And so if something doesn't change, if the flow to Belarus doesn't stop, or Polish policy isn't changed, or Belarusian policy isn't changed, we there's a serious possibility of a massive humanitarian crisis uh, on the border in the, in the next months. One thing, listening to you and listening to you describe this this horrendous situation is that this just really is not, I mean, there are people in Washington, D.C. Who care, who care deeply about this part of the world, but it is not one of the issues at front of mind in Washington right now, I would say. And I don't know, Tim, to what degree has this gotten the attention of people in, in British politics? I think not really at all. And it's it's fascinating and pretty striking and, and alarming really to hear Edo's stories. It's it's one of the truths really of politics that people do tend to concentrate a lot on what's going on in their own backyard. That's why this kind of reporting and these and these kind of enterprise pieces are, are very worthwhile. We do have Edo's story that we will put in the show notes to this piece. I mean, it raises the point of, is it just going to be Warsaw, Vilnius and Minsk working out this issue? At what point is this move to the front burner for the 
EU more broadly? Does it go beyond that? You know, what do you think? Well, the EU is in quite a sort of delicate position with Poland because at the same time as this migrant crisis is unfolding, you've also got the rule of law dispute where um, there, there are various crises, which we don't really have time to get into, but there are various crises between the EU and Poland over what the EU sees as Poland's ruling party undermining the rule of law in that country. And so the EU is in this quite sort of, and other European countries are in this quite sort of delicate position where they are at once having a dispute with Poland over the rule of law, which has included billions in recovery funds being withheld from Poland. And also they want Poland to succeed in stemming this flow of illegal migration because the last thing they want is what they see as a repeat of 2015, which, uh, you know, at least German politics was scarred by and German politicians and leaders of other countries promised their voters that there would be no repeat of 2015. So the EU and other European countries, Poland's neighbours, are in a quite delicate situation. Yeah, I read your story and, and it's it's very moving and, and it's certainly interesting being here at COP as well and reading it because climate migration is obviously already an issue in, in certain parts of the world. And if, as warming gets worse, the, the amount of migration will, will increase, especially from low-lying countries. Um, and so it's extremely important that world leaders can, can discuss migration and that climate migration is also something which is, is brought onto the agenda both at COP and, and going forward. Yes, both this specific migration story and climate migration more generally are, are ones that we will be following at The New Statesman. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both for as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
And now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. This week's question is, what does the Virginia governor's race mean for Joe Biden's presidency? I will take this one. As of last night, Virginia has a new governor-elect. It is Glenn Youngkin. He is the Republican. The first thing I want to say is that it is important not to read too much about national politics from a state election. The second thing is that I think there were some who rushed to blame progressives and said that Biden had gone too far from the left. This argument overlooks the fact that Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, was not a progressive. He was like the quintessential Democratic establishment candidate. And reports coming out from the White House this morning suggest that the lesson they are taking is not, oh, we need to pull it back, but oh, we actually need to get our agenda passed. Because to my mind, the real thing that Democrats should take from this election is that you cannot just do what Terry McAuliffe did, which is mostly say, Youngkin is Trump, Trump is bad, elect me so that we don't have so they don't have Trump. First of all, this gets out the Republican base. And second of all, you need to offer your voters something more and something concrete. In terms of where Republican politics are going, they really ran hard on critical race theory in Virginia. And it, it's hard to say, you know, to what extent were parents frustrated about their schools after a year and a half of the pandemic? And to what extent were they actually furious about critical race theory or, or what they think of when they think critical race theory? But because the Republicans won having campaigned on that, I think that we should continue to see that continue uh, across the country. Nationally, we kind of have a mixed picture for Democrats. There were some progressive victories like Michelle Wu, who just became the first woman and first Asian American to become mayor of Boston. At the time that we're recording this, it looks very likely that Phil Murphy will narrowly manage to become the first Democrat to win re-election in the state of New Jersey in 40 years. But there's no sugarcoating it. The loss of the Virginia governorship, a state that Biden won handily in 2020, it shouldn't scare Democrats. It should motivate them, in my opinion, to one, delivering on what they said they were going to do, and two, campaign on something on something positive. Just to briefly wrap this back, though, to the the topic at the beginning of this conversation, climate change, Glenn Youngkin has been quoted as saying, oh, I don't know what, what causes that. Now, perhaps as governor of the state, he will evolve and, and come to a more mature position. But uh, to me, it's a reminder of how polarized Americans are on this issue and what is at stake, not just for the state of Virginia, not just for the country, but really for the world if America continues to elect people who do not take this issue seriously to higher office. Tim, this race in Virginia was seen as a kind of mini referendum on Joe Biden's presidency. And obviously now it's almost exactly a year since he was elected, 11 months or 10 months since he took office. How would you say his presidency is viewed now that the kind of sheen of, well, you know, he got Trump out of office and that, that's faded slightly. How would you say it's seen in, in places like London at the moment? I think it's a mixed picture. I mean, obviously hopes were pretty high, uh, certainly after he declared at the G7 in Cornwall in June. America is back, but is America back really? Is is the US showing the kind of leadership on climate that that the world needs to see, for example, at the moment? And what about other other issues? You know, rising to the challenge posed by China. Certainly, Biden had some pretty tough words for Xi Jinping at the COP press conference this week. I think it's been a big mistake, quite frankly, for China and respect to China not showing up. The rest of the world is going to look to China and say, what? value added are they, are they providing? And they've lost an ability to influence people around the world and all the people here at COP. I think obviously 
it's quite hard as a new leader. He's got to come in and get his agenda going. And his message back in June was, give me time, give me time. But I'm not sure really that, that politics works quite like that these days. I think you have to move much faster than perhaps. So we'll see. But I, I don't get a sense that um, the threat for Democrats posed by Republicans, in particular the specter of a, of a second Trump term, has receded. And uh, that's going to be a big worry for them and for lots of, lots of other leaders around the world who are keen on multilateralism. I would agree with Tim in that there are some who suggest that, oh, Youngkin won without Trump. I think that's a real misread of what happened. I think he much more subtly embraced Trump and, and Trump policies. Uh, just one last question for Philippa. I, I had a piece this week that said Biden should perhaps spend less time saying, China, why aren't you here? Why aren't you at the table? And more time getting getting your own house in order. But you're a cop. How, how did how did that go down with you? Yeah, I think that's probably a lesson for, for all delegations is that they, they need to get their house in order and stop finger pointing elsewhere. I mean, there's also been comments towards the UK that they're very good at coming up with, for example, the deforestation treaty, but then there's issues in the UK or the UK logging elsewhere to keep power stations, for example, on going in, in the UK. So I, I don't think this is just an issue that's limited to the US and China, though there's clearly uh, lots of geopolitical issues between them, which is it means that that comes to the fore. But this is an issue for all countries that they need to, to get their own houses in order as much as making sure that other people are also moving forward in terms of climate action. Thanks to everyone who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Before we go, all right, gang, rapid fire. What should listeners look out for in the coming week? Tim, we will start with you. So for me, it's really Brexit, what next? Um, the UK and France have been beating each other up again in public over fish this time, fishing licenses. So there are talks ongoing between British and French ministers to try to resolve that. And I expect they'll get a deal pretty soon. But the bigger problem in the longer term is that Northern Ireland protocol issue again. The government in London is trying desperately to get that rewritten. But the European Union isn't moving quite as far as, as uh, certainly Boris Johnson's team wants. That is probably the bigger problem. Philippa, is it more, more cop? I don't think I can really say otherwise, given I'm sitting in Glasgow for another <laughs> week or so. <laughs> so yes, I shall be keeping an eye on what's happening at COP. Ido? Yeah, I have to I have to say COP as well. Obviously, such a, such a huge issue. So I'll be keeping an eye on whether the apparent achievements of the first few days can, can be sustained. And what will you be looking forward to, Emily? I will be watching whether a not great night for Democrats in Virginia and elsewhere can actually spur Congress to finally pass Biden's agenda, which includes the hundreds of billions of dollars in clean energy provisions that would allow, you know, the US to say, hey, we did something during COP. And that's all the time we have for today. You can read our international teams reporting at newstatesman.com and join us on Monday for an in-depth interview with Nathan Law, the Hong Kong dissident. All of the New Statesman's articles on COP26 will be free to read for the duration of the conference. So if you'd like to hear more from Philippa and Tim in Glasgow on the progress of the negotiations, you can head to newstatesman.com. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world review. It's free, as is Philippa's new environmental newsletter, Green Times, sent every day during the duration of COP and weekly thereafter. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.